I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're going to be talking about something that I pretty much guarantee you haven't heard of, but please, please bear with me on this one. We're talking about a book called Edge of Life. And the reason why I want to talk about it is because I wrote it. And it's one of the books where unfortunately I've had to self-publish. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it because as always I write either history books or historical fiction. So definitely there's going to be some history in this one. But we'll go into that a little bit more in a moment. So if you don't know... By now, I condense some history, clues in the name. And how do I condense the history? Because I start off with something in the world of pop culture. It might be a TV show, might be a movie, might be a song even. And I take that and show how either accidentally or deliberately there's some real history lurking just underneath the surface. Now, I've managed to do it on things as wild and weird as ABBA's Money, Money, Money. I mean, that's a three-minute song, and I did more than 30 minutes on that. I'm quite impressed with that. Or Monopoly, for example, or Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, I can go into all kinds of weird and wonderful areas. However, sometimes I do occasionally do one about real, actual historical fiction or a history thing. Like, for example, Last of the Mohicans. So that was obviously about an era in American history and therefore makes things a little bit easier. So this is what I'm doing on this occasion. Edge of Life is a book that I thought I would never write. Let me give you a little bit of background on this, okay? What happens in the past is about 10 years ago, I wanted to write a history book. Because I did a degree in archaeology and medieval history, and I love it. But then it just wasn't paying the bills, so I got, if you like, in inverted commas, a proper job. And that's where I was for, let's say, 15 years. But then with the rise of social media, I realised that there was this big appetite for history, which inspired me again. Because the problem was, earlier than that, I had thought about, you know what, I'm a good presenter, it's what I have to do in the day job. Maybe I should go to something like BBC or Channel 4 or the History Channel and say, hey, you know, could I possibly present some history programmes? And you just can't get anywhere. I don't know how to get to producers in the BBC. So, yeah, that didn't work. But what, quite literally, hundreds of people have done on Twitter 
or YouTube or Facebook or wherever is created their own history brands. So this led to me thinking, okay, well, I'm going to write British history from my perspective because almost everybody who writes a book about British history tends to start in 1066, which is really weird because you know you might get a chapter on the Romans and that's your lot. Then it, then it leaps to 1066 and, and then off we go for the rest of it. But why? Because there's this whole prehistoric Britain. So yeah, so I wrote my own thing. I started with the very first evidence of human remains in Britain and took it all the way up to 1945. And I then touted this book, which I called The Busy Person's Guide to British History. I touted this round a whole load of historical publishers and I got nowhere. But I did get a very good piece of advice from one particular publisher who said, look, the problem is this, for that kind of general history book, you need to be a celebrity. So it's almost like, I don't know, George Clooney's Big Book of History or something like that. You ain't George Clooney and they're not wrong. So with that in mind, they then said, look, what you want to do is focus in on a specific topic become a subject matter expert, can you do that? And I went, oh, yes, I can. I specialized in the Crusades, and I don't think there's been a good introductory book about the Crusades. So I wrote one, and I called it Deus Vult, A Concise History of the Crusades. Not a condensed history, a concise history, okay? So I went back to that very same publisher, and they went, oh, don't really like the Crusades. Sorry, sorry, so sorry. But, you know, that's exactly the right track. But then I spoke to another company called Amberley. They liked it. And that's where my relationship started with Amberley Publishing, who still, to this day, is publishing my history books. So things like The Roman Empire and 100 Facts, or Deus Volta, Concise History of the Crusades, or something like Forgotten History, which is just a collection of lots of silly, forgotten, random bits of facts from, from history from all over the world. They've done about half a dozen books with me. Thank you so much, Amberley, for your support. And then I started getting an itch about writing historical fiction. So the first one was called Silent Crossroads, which I know Greg really rated. And basically it's a story of Harry Woods. He's a British soldier in World War I, and he gets captured by the Germans, and he ends up changing sides. Why does he do this? For love. He falls in love with a German nurse and he realises that, you know, the enemy isn't necessarily all that bad. And then we see Harry in the interwar years in Germany with his now German wife and they have a daughter together. And so you get to see Germany in the interwar years through the eyes of an immigrant, a British immigrant. And you get to see the German Civil War, which a lot of people don't know about, which happened pretty much immediately after World War One. And you get to see the the, obviously the financial crash and the hyperinflation and the rise of one Adolf Hitler as well. So you get to see the conversations around this. There are some people who are deeply suspicious of Hitler, as they were, and there are some people saying, well, maybe he's going to finally fix this country that's been in such a mess for 20 years, which again was a genuine opinion held by people in the 1930s. And then World War II, Two breaks out, and, and cutting a long story short, Harry Woods ends up fighting in both world wars for multiple different sides. And at the very end of the book, he has to come to terms with his moral choices. It's his story, but also the story of his wife and daughter, because for a large part of World War II, they are separated. And you get this very noble woman looking on as her daughter becoming corrupted by 
the forces of the Nazi powers. You know, if your teachers are telling you to believe in Hitler, if, if the posters are telling you to believe in Hitler, then why, as an impressionable young person, would you not believe in your leader? What I was trying to do is, you know, it's got action scenes in it, it's got family drama in it, but it's got this big moral core to it as well. Really proud of it. Took it to Amberley and they said, we don't deal with historical fiction. So sorry, it's a very different market. And I then touted it around to multiple. Basically, at that point, I was going to need uh, an actual representation, a literary agent. And I touted it around. I even had one person look me in the eye and say, Jem, you can write. Good. Good to know I can write. And this is a commercial idea. Excellent. Like to sell more than one copy then. But I'm just not in love with it enough to take it any further. What? Not asking to marry it. I just want you to publish it. So yeah, I kept getting this, and so in the end, I thought, okay, to to hell with this. I know that this is good. I'm going to self-publish it. So I did. Then I ended up doing a second book, which is called Echoes, and that's about the Vietnam War, and that is both then and now. Basically, it's a story of a grandfather today taking his deeply shallow and disinterested granddaughter to Vietnam because she was going to go anyway. And now suddenly she's got to go around, go around with grandpa and he's reliving the scene of, in essence, his crimes back in the 1960s. So you actually see a place in the 60s and you see what happened and then you see the grandfather there trying to explain this to a granddaughter. So again, a bit like Silent Crossroads, there's action in it, if you like, that's showing you the horrors of the realities of war. This one, however, is a bit different in the sense that A, it's it's sort of flashing backwards and forwards, but also I sat down with some actual Vietnam veterans. And so some bits of that book aren't made up. I just wrote down what they told me. And I got some excellent reviews for that. Again, I had to self-publish it. And the other part of this, I guess a little bit like Silent Crossroads, is the fact that it's also about this inter-era relationship. You know, best will in the world, you make mistakes, but trying to tell your kids to avoid the same mistakes, they just don't listen. And also, your grandparents are cute and cuddly. Do you want to know if your grandfather killed somebody? There's all that going on in Echoes. And then I wrote a very different historical fiction book called And God Watched. And God Watched is set in the Middle Ages and we're back to the Crusades. And this has got various metaphors about intolerance and about immigration and forced immigration because of crises of war. And like all my historical fiction, I've got the history right, okay? This is around the Siege of Arca in 1291, just like we talk about the Tet Offensive in Echoes and D-Day in Silent Crossroads. So the real events happen in the real way that they really happened, but I always make sure that my central characters are always made up because I, I don't like it when people have their central characters, George Washington, and then George is not in the place he should be at that time. It's like, well, if they're not doing the story you want to tell, then why are you telling it? Pick somebody else. I've got made up people in very real situations. And in the case with And God Watched, you get this idea. And I always found this fascinating when I was studying the Crusades about how could you possibly both sides think God's on your side? That doesn't work because if you lose, does that mean the other guy was right or that you were sinful? I mean, it just, it's, I find it such a bizarre idea. Also, if surely if you're well-trained, well-equipped and you've got the bigger army, you don't need God. You're going to win anyway. You know, God didn't give you the soldiers or the swords. You got those all by yourself. Anyway, so that was it. And then after doing three and self-publishing all three, it's like, okay, I'm done. 
you know, do, do you know what? Hand on heart, each one of those has sold hundreds of copies, not thousands of copies. And they're all available. Sorry, the way I publish is I use KDP, which is part of Amazon. And I've had some people go, oh, I refuse to support Amazon. Okay, fine, that's on you. But unless you're going to give me a publishing contract with Penguin or wherever, Random House or some other major publishing house, a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. But after doing three of them, I thought, okay, I'm done. Nothing else to say. I've got that out of my system. And then 2020 happened. And I'm sitting there going, I'm sitting through history. Just like I was thinking about how did Harry deal with these crises in Germany in the interwar years, I'm sitting there going, I'm dealing with not a dissimilar economic crisis in Britain right now. My business has fallen to pieces and I've got to rebuild it or I can't pay the bills. This is important stuff. And so there's a part of me going, I gonna have to write this. And also I realized that there are gonna be so many books about 2020, so I can't just write about 2020. So here we go. Edge of Life is about Ash. She is a nurse in New York in 2020. And it's also about Dorothy, a nurse in New York a hundred years earlier. And Dorothy is actually the great-grandmother of Ash. So you get to see these two women from the same family doing the same job, both having to deal with mass outbreaks, huge public health crises, the two biggest in American history, killing hundreds of thousands of people in their country, and also the political turmoil that's going around them. But the two people are separated by time. And what I discovered when I started digging into the late what, teens. So basically, Spanish flu came out in 1918, in the winter of 1918. And it finally finished. It went around the world four times. There were four peaks of Spanish flu. And the final one was in 1920. By then, an estimated 80 million people had died around the world. Now, at the time of recording, a little over 2 million have died of coronavirus. I don't think we're going to get to 80 million. It's just not the same level of virulence and aggression and lethality of the Spanish flu. And the more I studied it, the more I delved into it, it's like, oh my goodness. Well, I, I knew that Woodrow Wilson was the president, but if you're like me, you would learn that Woodrow Wilson was the man who brokered pre peace at the end of World War I. You're right. What I didn't realize was how, even for his day, Woodrow Wilson was considered quite racist. On the highly racist movie, Birth of a Nation, which shows the Ku Klux Klan as the saviors of the South, I'm not making this up, where you've got white people in blackface and all black characters are portrayed as kind of savage and potentially going to molest white women. It is the very worst forms of racism. It's an important movie because it's actually one of the first truly large-scale films. You know, it runs a decent length of time and it's got, you know, a cast of hundreds and it's got actual pitch battles and things like that. It's, in some ways, it's on a step in the right direction of modern movie making, but in terms of its deeply racist story and caricatures and imagery and all this stuff, it's absolutely unacceptable. And anyway, Wilson said of it at the time that it was history written in lightning. And so very true. Yeah, Wilson was not good for the African-American population of America. And indeed, in 1919, there was something called the Red Summer. 
a huge series of violence breaking out all across America, sometimes in small towns in Louisiana, but also in massive urban populations like Chicago and New York, where black people were literally lynched, beaten in the streets. Does any of this sound slightly familiar like 2020? Hmm? Possibly? Maybe? So yeah, the, the echoes for a time in the middle of writing this book, it wrote itself. I was sitting there going, I can't believe how much this is reminding me of this year as I was going along. Now, I obviously need to sell it to you a little bit and I don't want to give too much away. So the thing that I noticed when it came to writing my first draft of Edge of Life is that I wanted to tell this historical story. I wanted to put on record that this was happening at this time. For example, can you give me the exact date of when Britain went into its first lockdown, or at least England formally announced its first lockdown? It is a little harder than you think, isn't it? Also, can you give me which month Boris Johnson became infected by coronavirus? So the answers to those two questions was March 23rd is when the official announcement of lockdown and stay-at-home orders started in England, at least. And Boris Johnson became affected by coronavirus in April. And so I wanted to put this stuff in, but I realized that, and this is a common mistake in historical novels, is you've done the research and you want to tell people the history, but nobody talks that way apart from me. Okay, I literally sit sometimes in pubs just spewing out, did you know in 1066, blah, blah, blah. That's what it's like living with Jem. So sorry. However, I realized it just was not going to work as a book. It was going to be the very worst kind of historical fiction. So I did something a bit different. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What I did is at the start of each chapter, there's like two, three, four paragraphs of this is what's happening in the world right now, be it in 1918 or in 2020. And either that becomes something that, that's relevant to this particular scene, or it isn't. But at least you know what's going on. And like I say, there are these remarkable echoes a hundred years later. I don't want to go into them too much, but one of the remarkable things that these women, these you know, they genuinely were thousands of nurses in America in the sort of 1920s and a little bit earlier, and yet these women were working as nurses in this horrific pandemic at a time when they couldn't vote. So you've got voting in the background. You've also got the Volstead Act, which is basically the banning of alcohol happening at the same time. You get a lot of these suffragette movements, these women's rights movements also backing the alcohol. But guess which one came out first? Women's rights or banning of booze? Do you know? One of them is the 18th Amendment of the US Constitution. The other one is a 19th Amendment. So they're back to back. But of course, they got round to booze before women. Isn't it ridiculous? So yeah, so I'm basically pointing out these things that are going on. Dorothy comes from an immigrant community. She is second generation Irish. Guess what's happening at the same time just after World War One? Yep, Ireland's fighting for its independence against the British Empire. So that becomes part of it as well. In some ways, it's a world that we can relate to, and yet in other ways it isn't. There is literally, at the beginning of this book, still a British Empire and an Ottoman Empire and a Russian Empire, but that's collapsing into a huge civil war of which thousands of American troops were sent to, which a lot of people don't even know about. And then in the modern world, Ash, Ashley, she is married to a Puerto Rican man. So she is also dealing with immigrants, if you like, and, and the immigrant experience in America and also the implications of that in 2020 with a president who has some pretty strong views about immigration. The other thing is that I mention in passing, in Silent Crossroads, an American soldier that gets, that basically interacts with Harry in World War I. And I make reference to that same American soldier just in one sentence. You actually find out about his grandson in Echoes. Indeed, the, the grandson is in the first scene of Echoes. Now, this is where people say, oh, you know, Marvel's got this sort of inter intertwining universe. And yeah, they do, but that's not the same thing as, as reality. And seeing I'm talking about real events, I've decided to weave these people in because whereas you see this American soldier in Silent Crossroads, you don't see anything else about him. But he goes back to America and he becomes the love interest of Dorothy in this new book of mine, Edge of Life. So that's something a bit different and interesting. So you, you actually get a little update on some of the other people from some of the other books that I've written.
Uh, I didn't connect it all the way back to the Crusader era of Arca and 1291 before you're wondering. Couldn't do that. Couldn't pull that one off. So the point is, it's not so much a trilogy, but these three books, I'm going to say if you like one or two of them, you're probably going to like all three of them. Interestingly, this one has the least amount of combat because I was previously talking about soldiers in Vietnam or soldiers in World War One, and yeah, Dorothy and also Ash are nurses in New York and neither of those actually have wars going on at that time. However, that's not to say that they don't end up in harm's way. As I point out, both those eras, 1920s and 2020, had periods of violence in America. And so you get to see this firsthand from these people. Now, obviously, 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 we've all just been through this. And I think this this is a slight worry for when I was writing it. It's like, does anybody want to be reminded of this stuff? So while it has some dark periods, and indeed, I did have feedback from my editor. This is the same woman who's edited all my books. This is the thing about my historical novels. About, apart from the fact that it's got a different ISBN number to a normal book, in every other possible way, if you just bought one and it arrived through your letterbox, you could tell no difference between that and a normally published book. And indeed, you can get it on Kindle for about 99 cents. So, I mean, it's a very good value for money for something like that. But my concern was, why would anybody bother reading it regardless? Because, first of all, it is remarkable how much you forget. Trying to work out what the chain of events were and how they overlapped in 2020 is really hard because suddenly we had our entire lives disrupted. There's still a part of me now in 2021 that still thinks it's still March 2020 because nothing's changed in about a year. So there's that difficulty. But also as, as time passes, I guarantee you're not going to remember the names of necessarily, well, you might remember the name of the black gentleman in America who was killed on video by the police leaning on his neck. George Floyd, if you forgot. However, can you name the second guy? About a month later, there was a guy who was stopped for sleeping basically in a, in a bay, in a takeaway place, and was attacked by the police, and he went a bit crazy, and in the end, they shot him dead. Can you remember the name of that gentleman? That's much harder. I mean, that sparked just as many riots as the first one and became a sort of rallying cry for Black Lives Matter. His name's Rayshard Brooks. Do you remember that? The point is you forget these details. These little details are stuck in there. And I bet there'll be a bit of you sitting there going, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And then when we go to the 1920s, well, I think that there's a part of you who's going to realize that clearly what happened in 2020 is part of an ongoing story. America has not solved its kind of melting pot myth. There are still huge racial divisions in America. And I don't have the solution to them, but I do think they need to be mentioned. Now, why did I pick America rather than Britain? Well, partly because I wanted to pull together these, these characters, but because I figured that America is a bigger deal, if you like, than Britain. Now, that's not to say that there's no British stuff in it. I'm proud Britain. I think that it's always nice to do some mentions of Britain in there as well. So yes, there is British elements too. Don't think that it doesn't include you guys. And then there is the name of the book, Edge of Life. 
like most of my books, there's kind of like a double meaning or you could think about it a little bit rather than just Lord of the Rings. We know what that is. So edge of life is two things. First of all, we have been forced to the edge of our lives through this pandemic. Our lives have been hugely disruptive. And I am very much of the opinion that this is one of these sort of key moments in history which will have ripples, will have effects. Like, for example, is everybody going to be going back to the office to work five days a week after this? Because we now know that people can work from home and do we really need to be in work just to shuffle paperwork, electronically speaking? So maybe we work four days from the office because if we can save a little bit of space in the office, maybe the office can be downsized a little bit and the company saves a little bit of money, which makes it more profitable, which means more likely I'm going to keep my job. So there's that kind of element as well. So the edge of life is that. But the second edge of life is I have actually been studying viruses for quite some time from a historical perspective. So taking Spanish flu, you probably all know this now, but prior to 2020, you didn't. That's the thing. But Spanish flu is so called because while this massive pandemic was raging across the world, it seemed that Spain was affected disproportionately badly. This is because Spain was not part of World War One and therefore its press was freer to just post the death tolls. Whereas places like Britain, they deliberately suppressed it because if you've got people dying in the Somme, as well as people dying from this damn flu thing, well, it's just looking like deaths out of control. So yeah, the democracies actually became suppressors of, of freedoms of speech at that point. And if you could argue it's like it's for its own good, greater good, if you like. But that's an interesting conversation to have. So yes, Spanish flu caused all these problems. And as I said, it killed about 80 million people by the time it had gone around the world four times. But it's a virus. And viruses are also technically described as edge of life. What do I mean by that? Because on their own, they're barely more than a bag of protein. They cannot move. They cannot breed. They are, in essence, inert. They'll just sit there. That's what a virus is until you drop it into a host cell and then it moves and then it multiplies. And indeed, because it's such a basic organism, most viruses don't have DNA. They have RNA, which is a much more basic version of DNA, which means that when it splits and turns into another virus cell, well, maybe the RNA got a bit mixed up, which leads it to mutating a new variant. And we've already seen this with coronavirus, but this is why something like the common cold is impossible to come up with a cure because as soon as you come up with a cure for one strain, there's already a completely different type of strain. And if you like, this is the one worry about coronavirus. Can we get everybody vaccinated before it changes so much that the vaccines are useless? That would be a big problem for planet Earth. So that's a little play on words because yeah, we've been living on the edges of our lives because of something that's also on the very edge of life. So going back to my editor, she said she was reading it as I was going along. And it's obviously at some points I couldn't write any further because I didn't know what had happened with, let's say, the election in America. And so she was saying the first third of this book is hard going, Jem. It's, it's just sort of death and chaos and, and horror. And I went, yeah. Yeah, it is, because that's what it was like. But stick with it, because I guarantee things will get better. And whereas whatever your views are about the American election in November of 2020, the point is that people have come to survive coronavirus. People have found ingenious ways to get around it. And this is what I'm saying to you now, this listener. Everybody 
and I mean everybody on planet Earth right now, has a coronavirus story, a COVID story. And this story will be passed down the generations. This is how our family survived that dark time. And it's, a, it's therefore a story of hope, of perseverance. I don't like this analogy. It's because it's problematic for so many different reasons. But a little over 40,000 people died in the Blitz in World War II in Britain. Now, we get this term, the Blitz spirit, and we, talk, we think about how tough that generation was. But now we're fast approaching 90,000 people dead in Britain from from COVID. So that's more than double from the Blitz. Now, you know, there's different populations and also most of those deaths were in London, although not exclusively, other places were hit too. So it's not a, it's not a sort of useful comparison in a way, in any sort of specific historical way. However, what it is, is a chance to think about, you know, this is our Blitz. This is our World War Two. You know, we talk about the post-war years, but the reality is about post-war is the fact that, which war? You know, Britain's fought in hundreds of wars. So which, but we know as soon as we say post-war, we know it's post the World War II. And just like now, post-COVID, I can't be the only one watching TV at the moment and thinking at times, oh, that's a big crowd. They're not two meters apart. (gasps) They just shook hands and they've only just met. You know, these things, have started to be ingrained in us. And who knows how you're going to feel the first time you're allowed out and you're kind of close to other people. There will be a time of readjustment. I'm sure in five years time, in in a way we'll be back to normal since everybody be bumping into each other on the tube and all this kind of stuff, but there will still be echoes of it. It's just a natural thing uh, when you get something this big to an economy something else worth thinking about i nearly fell off my chair when the bbc announced that this is the worst economic downturn in britain since 1709 which is a meaningless thing because the british economy in 1709 is pre-industrial for starters okay It, it doesn't make any sense as a statement a bit like the blitz one but i mean it's i guess it's something to hang on to but the point is i can't think of time ever in history before where the whole world's economy's going down and so yes that's what 2020 was nobody was having a brilliant year in 2020 and if you did you're a very strange person but yeah, so the point is this, well done for surviving. If you want to have a sort of little time capsule of what it was like in 2020, then try out Edge of Life. Please, please, if you can, grab a coffee. Like I say, if it's something like the online version, it's 99 cents or 99p. Uh, you can actually get a, a paperback copy. That's for more, but it's a real genuine book that is printed for you. And if you can put a review up, that would be lovely. And if you could spread the word, that would be even lovelier. Now, as always, I'd like you to do that with this podcast too. But on this occasion, because I don't have the backing of a publisher, like with all my other historical novels. And the thing is, though, there'll be lots of other people out there with their COVID books, you know, the whatever, Margaret Atwood or JK Rowling or whatever. You know, there'll be people, you know, in in 10 years time, there will be the classic COVID book and everybody go, oh, yes, that's the one to read if you really want to remember it. And I'm I'm smart enough to know it ain't going to be edge of life. But I would at least like to say, hey, do you know what? I was one of the first people out there. Or, you know, those bits that everybody loved in that book and like echoing this other stuff. Do you know what? I, I did it myself before they even got their one out. It would be nice to be able to put my own little flag into what will become a cottage industry of COVID stories. 
Anyway, thank you very much for listening. As you are aware, another podcast coming out soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.